most of you are familiar probably with Thomas Jefferson's religious beliefs. In some ways, they seem like they're hundreds of years old, and of course they are, and yet they seem so modern. For those of you not familiar with him, Jefferson had a kind of a love-hate relationship with Christianity. There were parts about Jesus that he was really attracted to, drawn to, found, you might even say, irresistible. And yet there were parts of the Christian message, parts of Jesus' life, parts of the gospel that he found offended his sensibilities. What I appreciate about Jefferson is that he didn't kind of, well, he wasn't as slick as we were. He's not as, 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 as eager to, to, to do what is, might be considered socially acceptable with the Bible. Instead, he just puts his convictions out there and lives like he believed. And so what that meant for Jefferson is that he took a razor blade, literally a razor blade to the Gospels, and cut out the portions that he didn't like. And for Jefferson, the parts he cut out, because the parts that offended him, were the supernatural things. Jesus walks on water. Jesus healed someone. Those get excised from what's now known as the Jefferson Bible, which you can see at the Smithsonian, you can see pictures on the web, of, of places where he's cut out the supernatural, even the resurrection, because he found it insensible. I'm glad we never do that. I'm glad that we are not like Thomas Jefferson, that we're committed church-going Christians, that we would never cut out portions of the Bible that we didn't like, that we'd never cut out portions of the Bible that offended us or didn't make sense to us or infringed upon our lifestyle. I'm glad that we don't treat Christianity, the Bible, like a cafeteria where you go through the line and you pick out that which you like and leave what you don't for other people. I'm glad we'd never do that. Except, of course, when we do that. I thought about Jefferson as, as I was thinking about the verse that we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, James chapter 4, verse 4. We, of course, have been working our way through the book of James, and, and we're in the fourth chapter now. In a moment, I'll put it up here on the screen. Or there it is now. That's fine. Uh, let, let's go ahead and, and, and read this. But here's my thing is I don't think I, I ever hear people talking about the subject of this verse. You may have already started reading it, but we'll read it together. Now, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you hear a lot of talk about that? Is that a verse you think about or meditate on or a theme that you pick up in your small group or the, the people you hang out with? See, I find that most people are either unfamiliar with this verse or they wish they were unfamiliar with it. Because there's something about it that we find uncomfortable. However, if we are going to cut this verse out of the Bible, we're going to have to keep our scissors out because we've got more cutting to do. See, 1 John says this in verse, chapter 2, 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. But we're going to have to keep cutting. Romans 12, 2. You see, we've heard from James, we've heard from John, and now we've heard from our third apostle, uh, Paul. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. You see, the, the New Testament apostles, those who were invested with God, the authority to write Scripture, 
they had a theme that too often the American modern church has ignored or set aside or cut out of their Bible. And that is that there's something about this fallen world that is incredibly dangerous to our soul. Maybe it's time that we put our scissors away, stop being so easily offended, and look and see what these have to teach us this morning. So so let's start with this. Why is it that we tend to set these things aside, set these verses aside? Maybe it's because we're not sure what it means by the world here. I mean, does this mean that if we're not to be a friend of the world or love the world or be conformed to the world, does that mean I can't watch clips on YouTube anymore? Does it mean that I have to you know, say no to current fashion trends? Does it mean I can't go to movies or sporting events? I mean, what does it mean to not be a friend of the world? Do I have to live like the Amish? Because nobody here is signing up for that. So, so maybe that's part of it. We just don't know what it means. Or maybe we're afraid that it's going to take all the fun out of life. Or maybe our objection is more spiritual in nature, and we say, well, we want to reach the world. And so if you want to reach the world and influence the world, you've got to be a little worldly yourself. They've got to be able to relate to you. Or maybe you're one of the naive people who think they aren't affected by the world culture that we live in. Maybe you're one of the naive, bless your heart people who think that they spend millions and billions of dollars on advertising and commercials, but it doesn't work with you. Well, if you don't understand what the Bible means when it says to not be a friend or not love the world or not be conformed to the pattern of this world, or if you think that for some reason, maybe because your age, your gender, your spiritual maturity, that somehow you're immune from the tempting of the world, Well, your soul is in great risk. Let me tell you about a guy named Demas. Demas lived in the first century, and he became a Christian through the ministry of the church. We're not sure about the details of exactly how and when he came to Christ, but it's pretty likely that he he believed the gospel through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And that's because Demas joined Paul's ministry team. Now think about this for a second. Demas becomes a Christian and then joins this band of people who worked with Paul. Sometimes they were sent out to do ministry in other cities. Sometimes they just supported the work in the area that Paul was in at the moment. But these were people that Paul had chosen to be with him. So you can imagine that that if you got chosen to be on that team, that you had demonstrated some spiritual maturity. That you had demonstrated a, a certain amount of Christian character. That your life had been transformed by the gospel. And it wasn't just that Demas had exhibited some spiritual maturity, but it was that he had a certain zealousness for the gospel that led him to make a lot of sacrifices. The Apostle Paul talks about all the challenges that he faced. He was stoned, for example, and left for dead. He faced danger at every turn in his ministry. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten and flogged. And so it it only makes sense that the band, the team that was with him, suffered a great degree of hardship. Demas was one of the guys who had counted the cost and who had decided that it was worth it. Demas was a guy who'd seen miracles happen. And so you see his name pop up in the New Testament a few times as Paul writes about him being on this team. And then at the end of Paul's life, he writes the book of 2 Timothy. It's the last book before he dies. 
in this verse, is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He writes to Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas, one of the committed, one of the mature, one of the disciples who'd really counted the cost, he deserted Paul, but far more importantly, he deserted Jesus. He'd left the gospel. Why? Why would this man who had seen so much and who had come so far now walk away from it all? Was it because of persecution? I mean, we know persecution was rampant in the early church and that the early disciples were beaten, flogged, jailed, threatened. Is that why he was in so much pain at the hands of his persecutors that he couldn't endure anymore? No. Was it because of some painful trial? Maybe he experienced some... some heartache or somebody he loved did one of those kinds of things where where you said i don't know if i can believe and follow god with this kind of pain in my life was that it no was it that he had some philosophical objection that jesus really wasn't god or did he find evidence that jesus really didn't rise from the dead no why did Demas, the committed follower of Christ, leave Jesus and leave Paul? Because he found this world more worthy of his love than Jesus. You see, Demas was convinced in his head, but he wasn't convicted in his heart. And here we see the power of worldliness, the power of love for this world to end kind of infect, infiltrate our heart and do incredibly great damage to our spiritual life. It is love for this world that pulled Demas away from Jesus. And it's something that could happen to us. I doubt it happened suddenly. I mean, I doubt that Demas was in a great place spiritually this day, and the next day he's leaving Jesus. No, it was probably far more subtle than that. I mean, I'm sure he was involved in the ministry still, doing all the things, teaching, preaching, uh, all the organizing work that he had done. But something was happening on the inside. Kind of like us. You can go to church, you can go to your small group, your men's group, your women's group. But something could be happening inside that isn't seen yet, but might end in trouble. So you could be going through all the motions, but your heart not be right. And maybe, just maybe, I want you to consider, because I'm worth considering it with you this morning, is, is that something that might be happening in my heart or your heart? Have you noticed things about your spiritual life, but you can't quite explain them? Have you noticed that your heart's not where it used to be? Have you noticed that you're still coming to church, you're still giving, you're still serving, you're still showing up at small group, but... But you're not interested in reading your Bible or praying that much. You know, have you finding yourself coming up with all kinds of reasons to miss church or to miss your, your, your Bible study or to miss hanging out with Christian friends? You know, maybe even your reasons to miss church, they're even starting to sound silly and ridiculous to you. But maybe you're finding a way to avoid all those situations and people where you feel accountable. See, the reality is that if you're not 
feeling much love for God, it might be because you're starting to love this world more than you love Jesus. Maybe what happened to Demas is in the process of happening in one of our lives this morning. James chapter 4, verse 4 again. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. See, up to this point, James has called them his brothers. Everybody he's writing this letter to, they're his brothers, his brothers and sisters. And now he says, you're adulterers. And what James is doing is picking up on an image in the Old and New Testament in which God is the husband and those who believe in him, the church, are his bride. And, and we see that, for example, in, in Jeremiah 3.20, where God says, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so Israel, you have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. And so God is saying to the church, to us, the individual Christians, you might very well be adulterers. You might have turned your back on your one true husband, Jesus Christ. How, how have I committed spiritually adult, spiritual adultery? By becoming a friend of the world. It's either or language. You can't do both. You're either a friend of the world and an enemy of God or a friend of God and an enemy of the world. You don't have the ability to choose both. But see, that's what we want to do and that's what James won't let us do. He puts a fork in our road. Like the old African proverb that, that a man walking two roads will split his pants. You know, we all need to check our pants, I think, to see if they're still there. Or Jesus put it this way, he said, you can't serve both God and money. But but that's exactly what we want to do. We want to serve both God and money. We want to be a friend of God and a friend of the world. And God says, no. We don't want to have to choose. James says, no, you're choosing every single day. You're always choosing. Think about what it means to have God as your enemy. You know, if I knock on your door, knock, 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 I'm your enemy, you go, who cares? You know I mean? Who are you? It means nothing to me. You can do nothing to me. And you'd be rightly so. What am I going to do to you? If the IRS knocks on your door, knock, 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 I'm now your enemy. Okay, well, you have my attention, right? Because they have more power. They can do something. I read this book. A friend recommended it to me as a book about uh, tigers in the uh, Siberian tigers who had gone nuts. This one tiger had gone nuts and started eating people. And the more I read it, it's almost like it was weird because it kind of got in my head. So I was like out running on the trail, and all of a sudden I heard these rustle in the, in the woods. I looked, and I thought there was a Siberian tiger. And I'm like, okay, that's ridiculous, Keith. There are no Siberian tiger, tigers here. But, but here's a picture. This is what got in my head. It started eating people, and I thought that was coming after me. If that thing knocks at your door, knock, 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 I'm your enemy, you pay attention. How much more when the God of the universe The God who created all things. The God who holds the keys to heaven and hell. He knocks on your door and he says, now I am opposed to you. I am your enemy and my power and in my might, I stand against you. Who is God's enemy? Who does God declare himself to be on opposite sides to and fully opposed to? Those who are a friend of the world. Now, the power of the world isn't the power of persecution, it's the power of seduction. Everywhere persecution goes, the church grows. 
That's why Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you see that throughout history and even today, that wherever there's persecution, the church thrives. No, the power of the world is not in persecution, it's in seduction. It doesn't persecute us, it seduces us. Charles Spurgeon says, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. See, it's not that you're trying to keep the boat out of the water. You're trying to keep water out of the boat. We're not trying to keep the church out of the world. We're trying to keep the world out of the church. We're trying to keep the world out of our own individual Christian lives, our own heart. Now, I get it that at this point, up to this point, I have not said what is the world that we're supposed to avoid. What is the world that's so dangerous? What is worldliness? And part of the reason I've avoided it until now is because it is so subtle to detect. As we've been going through James, we've seen it's things like favoritism toward rich people. It's, it's using your tongue in ways that bring harm and destroy, speaking negatively of others. It's things like selfish ambition and envy. It's things like the cravings that we have at our heart that lead to the conflicts we find ourselves in with other people that we talked about last week. Another way of looking at it is through the eyes of a guy named James Hunter. He's a sociologist, top-notch sociologist at the University of Virginia. And here's what he writes in the 1980s, okay? 1980s. He says, evangelicals still adhere to prohibitions against premarital, extramarital, and homosexual relations. But even here, the attitude toward these prohibitions has noticeably softened. Now, I know there's a lot more to be said about that. A whole other sermon, series of sermons on that. But do you see what he's saying? He's saying that when we see ourselves in this kind of over-sexualized culture that we live in and we reduce ourselves to nothing but our sexuality, one of the implications is that we have softened our sexual ethic, softened the Bible's sexual ethic. And it leads you to wonder, I wonder what other convictions that we've softened in order to fit in with the world around us. Hunter goes on to say, Many of the distinctions separating Christian conduct from worldly conduct have been challenged, if not altogether undermined. Even the words worldly and worldliness have, within a generation, lost most of their traditional meaning. Okay, let's, let's take a time out and say, what is worldliness not? What is it not? It's not a set of legalistic rules that God gives us that takes all the fun or enjoyment out of life. That's not what he's talking about here. Worldliness is, is, is not, he's not trying to get us to be some sort of monks, kind of living in some sort of monastic separation. He's not referring to the natural world, to the environment. He's not referring to the structures of the world like business or education or government. He's not referring to your job when he says don't be friends of the world. He's not referring to people. See, a godly Christian should be involved in all those things. Business, people, education, government, environment. Think of, for just a moment, think of Daniel and Joseph, two kind of heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. Both were excellent at the pagan culture they lived in. They were 
excellent in the pagan education. They were excellent at pagan business. They were excellent at pagan government. And they rose to a position of influence because they excelled in all those areas. And yet they were very godly men. So what is it that we're told not to love, to not to be friends with, to not be conformed to? Well, here it is. The world that is the organized system of values that is actively hostile to God. Let me show you in Scripture a couple things. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, the same word that could easily be translated world, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers. And the verse goes on. But I want our attention to be at the first part. This is the, the world that James is concerned about that does so much damage in our life is the world set of values and systems that Satan rules over. He's the God of this world. Or Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. See, that's the system and the values that is run by Satan and his demonic forces. It's that world system and values that we used to live for until we became Christians. Ephesians 2.2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. See, the ways of this world are the values in the system that non-Christians live by and that we as Christians still find ourselves drawn toward. One author, a guy named Ian Murray, wrote this as a definition. I liked it. Worldliness is departing from God. It is a man-centered way of thinking. So when we, we put ourselves at the center of our lives and ourselves at the center of our world, that's worldliness. It proposes objectives which demand no radical breach with man's fallen nature. It judges the importance of things by the present and material results. So it lives for the now, and it lives for the physical. It weighs success by numbers. It covets, watch this, it covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. So when we live for human esteem, for the praise of other people, and we're unwilling to be unpopular, that's worldliness. It declines to be a fool for Christ's sake. See, the gospel is always going to call us to live contrary to our culture, but when we don't want to be considered a fool for Jesus and take the uh, scorn of the world, that's worldliness in our heart. Worldliness, he says, is the mindset of the unregenerate, the non-Christian. It adopts idols and is at war with God. See, it's dangerous to define worldliness by behavior because we start coming up with these artificial lists. Well, you can't listen to this music, you can't play these games, you can't do this sports, you have, can't wear this, you can't drive this. But that's not worldliness. When the Bible wants to define worldliness, it does not start with our culture. It starts with our heart. It doesn't start outside of us. It starts inside of us. Let's look at 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, do you see where John starts? He starts with 
lusts. But the lusts aren't found outside, they're found inside of us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is our heart struggle. See, the word lust can just mean to take something good and want it too much. You can take something good like your kids and want their happiness so much that you elevate them to become an idol in your life. A good gift becomes an idol when we demand too much from it. I think sometimes we think of lust and we, we automatically, when we hear that word, we go into sexual stuff. And that's included in this, but it's only one small part. Lust is such a bigger category than that. Uh, here, I can show you this way. What do you think the, the, the biggest uh, tourist attraction was in the United States in 2012? If you just had to guess in your head. 2012, what attracted the most tourists? You might think, oh, I'm a nature lover. I was the Grand Canyon. Mm, bless your heart, no. 4.2 million people into the Grand Canyon. That's a lot. It's not close. Maybe if you have young kids, you go, well, I know what it is. It's Disney. We just came from there, going there, want to go there someday. Closer, closer, about from what I saw, 20 million people went to Disney World in 2012. And that's a lot, but we're not even halfway to the largest tourist attraction in the United States in that one year. If I gave you all day, you wouldn't guess it. The Minneapolis Star Tribune says that 40 million people visited this place. Twice as many as went to Disney World. It's in Minneapolis. It's the Mall of America. <laughs> you see, the lusts can include shopping. Lusts. A sinful lust is when you take a legitimate desire for financial uh, achievement and you turn it into a demand for financial success. It's a lust when a lust for styles and clothes is when they become something that you're kind of interested in to something that's a preoccupation with you. When a love for music becomes an obsession to always be listening to the best bands and defining yourself by what group of music that you like the most. Watch your heart. Watch your heart when you tell people what you do for a living. Watch your heart when you get invited to a certain party or a certain group. Or maybe when you don't get invited. What's your heart? What's your heart when you tell somebody your GPA or what time you got in that last race you were in? Or compare how you look or how you dress with someone else. Watch your heart when you receive a compliment. Because your heart might be telling you that worldliness is tugging. 1 John 2.17, he just keeps right on going into the next verse. He says, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. See, he, he wants to motivate us to walk away from worldliness by saying there is no future in it. None. It is superficial and temporal. It does not satisfy. It passes away. I know the world sparkles. I know it dazzles. I know the world makes big promises to us. But haven't you lived long enough yet to know that it never lives up to the hype? It never satisfies. It never does what it promises. It's 
Every promise is a lie. You might be familiar with Ted Koppel, ABC newsman, host of Nightline for so many years, for sure not a Christian, but wrote a book, uh, a kind of a memoir called Off Camera. Here's a quote. I think it's incredibly insightful. He says, So many people are indisputably fortunate to live in such an unbelievably rich and blessed nation. And yet, these Americans do not, by and large, strike me as a happy people. There is a sullen edge to our satisfaction. Our toys don't do it. Our houses and vacation houses don't do it. Two cars are not enough. The ability to travel wherever we wish is neutralized by the inconvenience of traveling under such crowded conditions. The richest people I know tend, by and large, to also be the unhappiest. More people are under psychiatric care and taking antidepressants than ever. Arguably, they might be even worse off without such care, but why do we seem as if we are under such unprecedented pressure when times are so good? I'm generalizing far too much, but this is not a happy country. And the worst part is that we don't seem altogether sure of what it is that we're missing. How can someone offer such penetrating insight, such insightful analysis to the problem, but to have no idea of where to turn for a solution? This morning's New York Times column reports that suicides are greater than ever. That people are dying less and less by violence in our culture, except in one area, self-inflicted violence. Suicides, especially between, of, of middle-aged people between age 18 and 54, are up 30% in the last 10 years. What does it tell us? Why are we so incredibly unhappy? What are we missing? Ted Koppel knows we're missing something, but he didn't know what. The Academy Awards are one of those award shows that Christine and I try to watch at least part of. And, and, and one of the parts that, that has always gotten my attention is, is where they take some time each year and they kind of honor, in their words, the people who died the year before. The people who are part of the academy and part of the entertainment industry, the movie industry, that, that died the year before. And so what they do is they have music in the background and they show these pictures. And a lot of them you know because they're famous people that have been in media. And you know, probably some you don't. But, but they show and they go, and they keep coming. And you're like, this is kind of too long. But they keep coming, fading in and out of people's faces who died this past year, people you used to watch on TV, people you used to watch in films, people that you heard seeing that were an important part of your life and now they're dead. Sometimes magazines do that. I've seen Time Magazine do it. Where it's the kind of end of the year issue. They'll have pages of people's pictures who are more in the news, politics, government, culture, of people who are important who died. And you kind of look through those, and those are people you knew, and you turn the page, and there's another page of a lot of faces on there you know, and you turn another page, and it's more. And these are all the people who just died last year. 
And it's only an unthinking person who doesn't realize that one day I'll be there. Not in Time Magazine, no, no. Not on the Academy Award show, no, no, no. But in the book of our family, our friends, our neighborhood, our community, where we work. Yeah, remember him, remember her, yeah. They died last year. Their lives pass away far quicker than we think. Why would we possibly want to build our passing lives on a world value system that passes away with it? See, that same fate met Demas. I don't know how he died, I don't know when he died, but he too died. I wonder what he would have said then after he died. I wonder what he'd say today. I wonder what he'd tell us. Because he loved Jesus, but was pulled away from Jesus by love of this world. I wonder if he would have said, I never saw it coming. My heart changed and it was gone before I realized it. I wonder if he would have said, I'm an idiot. I give up Jesus, the most valuable treasure, for something that was empty then and far emptier in eternity. What's missing? I think the psalmist knew what was missing. He prayed this in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's Jesus that's missing. Don't you want that verse to be true of your life? Who do I have in heaven but Jesus? And this earth has nothing I desire besides Jesus. I am not there. But I want to be. How about you? Do you want to be there? I'm going to invite the music team to come back up now. And I just want to ask you, do you want the world to lose its seductive appeal in your life? I think you probably do. I know I do. We're never going to get there by just trying to resist the world. We're going to have to have a greater love in Jesus. What drives out the love of the world is a greater love for Jesus. Look with me at Galatians 6.14. The Apostle Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Want to die to the world's power in your life? Want to die to its lures, its seductive lies in your life? It happens through the cross. It's in the power of the cross to separate our heart from the love of this world and to give us a greater love for Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus and embrace the cross through this new song. side my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee 
destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I hope or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still mine. stand as we sing. Jesus. 